the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing in our exposition of the book of Colossians, and we're now looking at the end of chapter 1 in verses 24 to 29, and I will read that as we prepare for the message. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden in to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of what you have done in and through the life of Paul, how you used him, and more so as he testifies of his ministry and how you have used him. This is true of all ministers and, in a sense, all believers how you work through your people, how you work through your church, the mystery of godliness that you have revealed to us through Jesus Christ. Lord, please help us to understand these truths, to apply them, to remember them, to walk in light of them. Please be with me as I preach your word, that my words would be your word, and that your word would go forth in power and precision to impact the lives of your people for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, a large part of the Christian life is learning to respond faithfully to the circumstances and events in our lives in a way which honors God. And, and as we do that, there are a few basic presuppositions which inform and guide our perspectives on the circumstances we face. Whether those circumstances be trials and challenges or blessings and opportunities. And every circumstance in life confronts us with decisions to make and actions to take. Even if that is only in our thoughts and attitudes or if our response is inaction or indecisiveness. It's still a response. And the first basic presupposition regarding our proper response to the circumstances in life is that there is a God who has created all things and knows all things and controls all things. And the second basic presupposition is that we are accountable to this God who has created us and everything else. And then the third basic presupposition which guides us as Christians and helping us to properly respond to events and circumstances is the character of God, and and that God has revealed his character to us through his word and through his works of 
saving his people from their sins and conforming them into the image of Jesus Christ. And though Scripture provides clear and distinct commands and principles by which we are to make decisions and conform our thoughts and behaviors, it is by these basic presuppositions concerning the nature of God, who we are as his creatures, and his character, which is displayed in his word and the works of Jesus Christ, that should inform and guide our lives. And this is what the Apostle Paul had just wrote to the Colossians about in verses 13 to 23 of chapter 1, in which he proclaims the preeminence of Jesus Christ in this section that many have considered an ancient hymn of the church, which exalts the glories of Jesus Christ, and, and through which this section, Paul explains to his readers Christ's nature as God, who we are as sinners and saints, and everything that Jesus Christ has done in saving us and his work in the church. And because of all that, Paul now shifts his message to what he has done and continues to do as a believer and minister of the gospel in response to the glorious Christ and what he has done for him and his church. As we just finished up this section uh, over the last uh, five weeks and um, looked at the glorious Christ and all his attributes and works and the, his words and, and what he is and what he has done and what he will do. Now we move into what the Apostle Paul has done and does in response to who Jesus Christ is. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul explains four aspects of his life and ministry that are the direct result of in response to the person and works of Jesus Christ. Four aspects of his life and ministry. First and foremost, Apostle Paul suffers like Christ. He suffers like Christ. That is a response to who Christ is and what he has done for him. We see this at the end of verse 23. He says, um, concerning the gospel, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. He suffers like Christ. He suffers like Christ, but what's interesting is at the beginning of verse 24, he says he rejoices in his sufferings. So he suffers like Christ, but he suffers with joy. He rejoices in his sufferings. And, and that must raise the question to us as believers, and especially in our context, which is, for the most part, pretty comfortable. Probably the most comfortable um, believers have been since the inception of the church. How can Paul suffer with joy? How can he rejoice in his sufferings? It's first because suffering sanctifies us. It sets us apart. It makes us holy. It shows that we belong to Christ. That we are not of this world. That, that we are not uh, bound to um, all the pleasures and comforts and uh, 
temptations of this world, as most people are. Suffering sanctifies us. It makes us holy. It changes us. And Paul, he comments on this in, in his epistle to the Romans. In, in Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 to 5, um, talking about justification by faith and, and the greatness of this faith and, and, and what has happened to us, um, he says this. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which is great. Sounds good. But then he continues and he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So as we suffer, it changes us. It produces endurance. It produces character. And character produces hope because naturally, we, when we suffer, we must turn our eyes off of ourselves. We must find hope in something else besides this world because Oftentimes when we suffer, the fact that the suffering will be alleviated might not come true. The fact that, or that the suffering may lessen, that might not be true. It might not happen. So naturally, suffering points us to God. And in pointing us to God and pointing us to our eternal hope and eternal life, we are being set apart. We are being sanctified. So he can suffer with joy because his suffering sanctifies him. He can also suffer with joy because suffering exposes the evil of this world. That even as, as Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That suffering shows us that we live in a fallen, sin-cursed world. And, and suffering can come in, in, in many forms. Um, primarily, as we, as we think of Paul and his ministry, um, certainly the, the first form of suffering that we think about is persecution. Persecution for the sake of the gospel. And, and that is primarily the suffering that he's talking about. But there's, there's also other forms of suffering in this world that sicknesses and illnesses and disease and... Just aging, just the effects of aging that we um, age and our bodies break down and, and there's aches and pains. And not only that, but we suffer because of the sinfulness of others. Even if it's not directed um, explicitly at us, but because of sin in this world, things don't work the way they're supposed to. Governments don't function the way they're supposed to. Companies don't operate the way they should. Uh, the church doesn't function the way it should. And so we suffer because of that, even if it's in a small sense, even if it's a frustration that things don't go the way they should. Suffering exposes the evil of this world. That's why 
Paul can suffer with joy because he, he sees the truths of the gospel in that. And he suffers with joy because suffering proves the gospel to be true. It proves it to be true. And there's so many things in this world that, that people find their hope in, that people live for, material possessions, vacations, comforts, pleasures, excitements, adventures, vacations. There's a sense that we're all living for a point of arrival, a point of comfort, a point of pleasure, or a point where we can rest. And, and when we suffer, that, in a sense, bursts our bubble in a, in a good way. And it proves to us that this world is broken, this world is sin-cursed, we are sinners, and, and especially if we uh, suffer well as believers, it proves the gospel to be true. And because of these greater truths, Paul can suffer with joy. But he can also suffer with joy because suffering proves Jesus' words to be true. Jesus himself said in John chapter 15, he says in verse 18 to 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And, and there's a sense that we as believers, as Christians, as we strive to be holy and strive to love one another and love our enemies as ourselves and try to be um, good upright, moral, upstanding citizens and honor Christ in every way in, in, in our walk and be the people that we're called to be, there's a sense that we would expect that to be reciprocated to us. That we would expect the world to honor us, to commend us, to love us. And, you know, a lot of times they will until we mention the name of Christ, or we'll, until we mention who we are, or, or why we're doing the things we're doing, that we're not just nice people. We're redeemed people. Because we've been redeemed, we walk in light of our redemption. But then when we proclaim this Redeemer, and that other sinners need to be redeemed as well, and need to come to Christ, and repent from their sins, and trust in Him, and follow Him, that bristles against their fallen flesh. And they don't like it. So, because they can't take it out on Him, they can take it out on us. Because we are His disciples. And it proves Jesus' words to be true. So, when that happens, we remember Jesus' words, and there is a sense that we can rejoice because everything we believed, everything we trust in, everything we hope in is shown to be true in a darker sense as we suffer for the sake of the gospel. He said these things further in John chapter 16. He goes on 
And he tells his disciples, he said, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. Because there is a sense that as we suffer, and particularly in the forms of persecution, that there's a temptation to fall away. There's a temptation to shrink back. There's a temptation not to be uh, so radical, so faithful. There's a temptation to, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so dogmatic about the gospel or about Christian living. Maybe we should um, just keep our mouths shut. Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That, in a sense, he's preparing them. Hey, this is coming. Suffering's coming. Persecution's coming. They they killed me. They hated me. They uh, blasphemed me. And they're going to do the same to you. And he goes on in John 16, and, um, and he says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. He says he's going to leave in that comfort, that, that personal um, mentor and comfort of God is going to go away. But he's going to send the helper. And he, he wants to remind us, reminds his disciples and reminds us throughout the church age that suffering will come. Paul said this, this to Timothy, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And that persecution may come in different forms. It may be very subtle. It may be not getting the promotion we wanted or not having the friends we wanted or um, our neighbors not being friendly to us. Um, very subtle, almost, especially in our context, so subtle that we, we wonder even if it is persecution and then if we claim it to be persecution, others will say, no, 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 you're, you're just, that's not persecution. You know, unless someone's really hunting you down and going to kill you, you're not being persecuted. No, you, you can be persecuted in many, many different ways. And suffering comes in many, many different forms. It can come in mental anguish. But Paul, understanding the whole aspect of suffering, of Jesus' words concerning suffering, of how suffering sanctifies us, of how suffering exposes the evil of this world, how suffering proves the gospel to be true, how suffering proves Jesus' words to be true. Because of these things, Paul can suffer with joy. He can rejoice in his sufferings. So Paul suffers like Christ because he suffers with joy. And second, because he suffers for the sake of the church. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And and as we read this, there is that that phrase, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that can kind kind of confound us and, and make us wonder what's happening here. What is he doing? Because Christ's sacrifice was perfect. It was once for all for our sins. His sacrifice is over. So what is Paul talking about? And one commentator writes concerning this, 
this verse. He says, the church is built up by repeated acts of self-denial in successive individuals and successive generations. They continue the work which Christ began. The underlying principle is the believer's union with Christ. That union is so intimate, Christ the head, his people the body, that he suffers when they suffer. His personal sufferings are over, but his sufferings in his people continue. Perhaps Paul was thinking of Christ's words to him on the Damascus road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus was ascended. Saul was persecuting believers. But in persecuting believers, he was persecuting Jesus. That there is this intimate union between us and Christ. So as we suffer, we are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And as he says lacking, it's almost as if um, Christ exposing the evil of this world is not over with. And as we suffer, we expose the evils of this world. As the church suffers, as one um, church father says, uh, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That as we suffer, as we are persecuted, we prove the gospel to be true. We prove Jesus to be true. And so, Paul suffers for the sake of the church to fill up these afflictions, fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. But more specifically, though, how exactly does Paul suffer for the sake of the church? We know that he's being persecuted. We, we, we know we can read about that in First and Second Corinthians and in and, and, and other of his epistles. But how does he suffer for the sake of the church? Well, first, first and foremost, he, he suffers for the sake of their salvation. Not, not their atonement, but, but being willing to accept that suffering, that persecution, that opposition as he proclaims the gospel. And as many of these believers in the ancient world were, were steeped in pagan religions and mysticism and and false religions and idolatry. And certainly as he comes with the gospel and proclaims the gospel, he is opposing these false religions. And so he suffers. And he explains this suffering in 2 Corinthians. And there's a couple passages in 2 Corinthians that I want to share. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verses 5 to 11, you can turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 5 to 11. And, and all throughout this epistle, and, and even 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about his ministry and his suffering. And, and you know, we, we know of the epistles of 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus as the pastoral epistles, talking about pastoral ministry. But as, as many pastors have said, the, the true pastoral epistles are 1 and 2 Corinthians. It talks about the nitty-gritty ugliness of ministry. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 5 to 11, he says this. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So what he's saying is, as he goes and, and the other apostles and the other believers go and proclaim this marvelous gospel, this light of the knowledge of the glory of God, it, it's as if this immeasurable, um, invaluable treasure is being dispensed through a vessel of clay, a, 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 a almost worthless vessel. The thing of infinite worth is being proclaimed through a thing that is worthless. And in a sense, as we proclaim it, we are being treated like Jesus. And we are to be Christ-like. We are to walk as Jesus did. And, And as we do that, as we proclaim his gospel... There will be opposition. There will be suffering. And so he suffers. He suffers for the sake of the church. First, that he suffers for the sake of their salvation, that he's willing to suffer so that they would hear this gospel and believe it. Second, he suffers for the sake of their sanctification, that they would be made holy. And later on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 6, he explains this to the Corinthians, that how he suffers for the sake of their holiness, for the sake of their sanctification, that they would grow in holiness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 3 to 10, he says this. He says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. He and the other fellow believers and apostles are willing to endure all these forms of suffering for the sake of the church, for the sake of believers, for the sake of their sanctification, that they would be built up in Christ. And and notice as he... He says in 2 Corinthians 6 that it's not just the persecutions that he suffers, but just the suffering that that comes from living in a sin-cursed world, hardships, 
calamities, I mean, disasters, things that just didn't go right, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. There's, there's things, I, I mean, just, just living in this world, we, it's life. It's, you just suffer. And, and yes, we are, in a sense, um, isolated from a lot of the sufferings in the world because of our day and age, because of the country we live in, because we are so blessed. But, I mean, just for the normal person in uh, the ancient world, in the first century world, just life was hard. Just in general, life was hard. And Paul's willing to not only endure just the hardships of normal life, but to take it a step further and to labor and to endure persecution for the sake of the church and their sanctification. So he's willing to suffer for the sake of their salvation, for the sake of their sanctification, and then the, for the sake of their encouragement. So that they would be encouraged, so that he could be an example to the church of how to suffer well. And that's why he, he is able to, he rejoices in his sufferings to encourage them. And, and Paul talks about this, uh, and, and he, he wrote Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philemon all, all around the same time while he was in prison. And in, in the first chapter of, of um, the epistle to the Philippians, he, he writes this concerning um, his suffering for the sake of the church and, and to, for the sake of their encouragement. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12 to 16, he says this. He, he writes to the Philippians, and, and surely um, that letter would eventually reach its way to Colossians. And it, it, it's not like as these letters were being circulated and delivered to um, the, the churches in the ancient world, it, it's not like they opened one another's mail, so to speak. They're like, oh, Paul sent you guys a letter too. Can we read that? And eventually it would be circulated. But in, in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 12 to 16, he writes this. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He suffers for the sake of their encouragement for the sake of their salvation, their sanctification, everything, all, every aspect of ministry he's willing to suffer for. And in his sufferings, 
he can be an encouragement to the church, that they would press on in faithfulness. So Paul suffers. He suffers like Christ with joy. He suffers like Christ for the sake of the church. And then he suffers like Christ to the glory of God. To the glory of God. Because in his suffering, he shows that the gospel and the gospel ministry is of greater value than all the comforts of this life. He's in a sense glorifying God as he's suffering. He's honoring God by his attitudes of how he suffers. And in a sense, he's He's suffering like Christ did. This is the same way Christ Christ did everything for the will of the Father. Everything to glorify His Father and Himself. The the, the great missionary C.T. Studd said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for Him. If you know a little bit about His life, He had fame and fortune. And He sacrificed it all for the sake of Christ. One time he gave his whole fortune away. He said, no, no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Because my sacrifices can never compare to his sacrifice. So as we suffer, and, and even in sacrificing our earthly goods and, and our comforts, there is a sense that we're willingly suffering for the sake of the gospel. And we glorify God in that, as so long as we do it with this attitude that the gospel and the Christian life and Christ himself is of greater value than anything this life can offer us. Paul suffers, uh, he suffers like Christ to the glory of God by emulating Christ in the way he suffers. He, he's showing Christ. He, he's, he's walking in a Christ-like manner. He glorifies God by suffering for others and, and not his own name's sake. He, he, he's, he's not suffering to make a name for himself. Because there is a way in which we could suffer a, with a martyr's attitude and receive praise for it. We, we can turn our sufferings around for our benefit. And, and it, it, it's horrible. To, to boast, to have that, that red badge of honor, the, the martyr's badge. No, we, we, we suffer for Christ. We, we, we suffer like Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As Paul suffered, he suffered for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his body. And if we look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, we can see that this is how he suffered. He suffered with joy. He suffered for the sake of the church. And he suffered to the glory of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, in the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 4, the the author of the letter to the Hebrews, um, in, in a sense, in this short passage, tells us our, what our attitude should be like as we live a life of faith after having just expounded upon the heroes of, faith, of the faith in chapter 11. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 to 4. He says, Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sin such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Get this, he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We really haven't suffered. And that's easy to say in our context. We really haven't suffered compared to the heroes of the faith and definitely compared to Paul or compared to Christ. But we will suffer. And when we do suffer, we are to suffer like Christ, as Paul did. And so first, in responding to what Christ has done for him, to the glories of Christ, to his greatness, his glory, his nature, what he has done for the church, and Paul suffers like Christ. And second, he fulfills his stewardship from Christ. Verses 25 to 27 in Colossians 1, he says this. He says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And say, this, this ministry of his, his calling is a stewardship. There's nothing special about him. And and he shows that in several of his epistles as he speaks of his testimony and who he was and what he did. He was a persecutor of the church. And yet yet God met him on the road to Damascus, changed his whole life, and, and showed him, Jesus said, I will show him how much he will suffer for my name's sake. And he gives him this ministry, this stewardship, that, that there's nothing special about him. There's, there, yes, he, he had spent years of learning the Old Testament, and certainly that was used. But it's a stewardship. He did not gain it. He did not earn it. It's entrusted to him. And because this ministry is a stewardship, he fully embraces it. He fulfills his stewardship from Christ by fully embracing it, by fully understanding the origin of it, that that it's from God. This is a stewardship from God that was given to me. It was given to me for you. It wasn't given to me for my sake or for my rewards or for my notoriety. It was given to me for the sake of the church. And it's from God for his church. I'm just a tool. That's all I am. I'm just a a means of what God will use to build up his body. So he fully embraces this stewardship by fully understanding the origin of it. It's not because of him. It's from God. And then by fully understanding the scope of it. The scope of his stewardship is the word of God. It's not his opinions. It's not 
um, what his his desires, his earthly desires. What it's not based on worldly wisdom or or uh, uh, practicality or pragmatism. What will work? It's based on the Word of God, imparting the whole counsel of God to the people of God, to make the Word of God fully known to them. He fully embraces it because he understands the origin of it. He understands the scope of it. And he also fully understands the consequences of it. That, that this stewardship will involve opposition. But in, in, in the fact that it will involve opposition and suffering, he remembers the words of Jesus. And he rests in that. So he fulfills his stewardship from Christ first and foremost by fully embracing it. And if he did not fully embrace this stewardship and this ministry and this calling, then when times got tough, he would not suffer well. He, he would have departed. He would have, or, or at least capitulated a little bit. You know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be so bold. Or maybe, maybe you know, I, I, I shouldn't just go directly into the town square. Maybe I should try to make friends first before I, you know... Um, slowly preach the gospel, maybe, maybe gain a small following and then that following will get bigger and, and then I'll have a little bit more credibility, a little bit more support, and then my words will be accepted a little bit more. No. He goes boldly and he proclaims the gospel to the towns and villages from house to house. And there is a sense that there is some wisdom in going to the Jews first, particularly because they had the word of God. And so... Many times he would go into synagogues first. But no, he, he fully embraces his stewardship in that he is to proclaim the word of God. And because he fully embraces it, when the suffering and the opposition comes, he can endure it. And he can second, faithfully discharge this stewardship. Verse 25, he says, to make the word of God fully known. And, and there is a sense that he, he, he fills up the afflictions, what is lacking in, the affliction, in Christ's afflictions by making the word of God fully known. You know, two, two of the same verbs, filling up and making fully known. Um, and what is he to make fully known? Uh, the whole council, but specifically the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, this mystery of the gospel. And everything that would support and explain the gospel, as Jesus said, um, or actually the disciples he was speaking to on the road to Emmaus, how he explained the, the scriptures to them. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened up the scriptures to show himself throughout the Old Testament? And, and yes, it, it wasn't that he had a scroll with them <laughs> there, but he explained the scriptures to them. And this is what Paul does. This is how he faithfully discharges his ministry by ministering according to the word, making it fully known. He explains this to the Corinthian church. In the 1 Corinthians 3, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. 
only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's talking about the scope of ministry and the judgment of ministers. And this is why he, he ministers according to the word to make it fully known, to reveal um, this mystery hidden for ages in the gospel, to stick to the whole counsel of God, to minister according to the word. This is how he faithfully discharges his stewardship by sticking to the word, because he knows that he will be judged. But more than that, he knows that, that if he builds on anything else, uh, other, anything else other than the word of God, that that building will not stand. It will be burned up. It is, I, I, I remember one, one of my professors who had been a pastor for a long time, he said, you know, my most faithful part of my ministry, where... where where I, I could be sure that I, I wouldn't mess up, that I wouldn't do anything wrong, was when I read the scriptures. <laughs> he said, I can't mess up there. I just simply read the scriptures and there's no, you know, but once I, I start to explaining and use analogies and metaphors, I, I, I get into the realm of my own thoughts and logic and and quotes and other things, and there's the potential to bring in something else, to bring in wood, hay, and stubble. But so long as I stick to the scriptures, I'm building with gold, silver, and precious stones. And that foundation will stand secure. That's how he faithfully discharges this stewardship, by ministering according to the word, and then by ministering in the fear of the Lord, knowing that he is entrusted with this stewardship and he will be judged according to how he ministers. That there is a holy fear that every minister and, and even every believer will give an account. But for ministers, the, the, the accountability is raised a lot higher. And so Paul sticks to the word. He sticks to proclaiming the whole counsel of God, to making the word of God fully known. He's able to faithfully discharge his duties as a steward by making the whole counsel of God known to the people, by ministering in the fear of the Lord, and by ministering in the hope of glory, that that. There is glory. There is a reward. There is an eternal hope 
as he said to Timothy, a reward laid up for me. And he tells Timothy this. He says, he says in 2 Timothy 2.10, he says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That there is glory. There is hope. And even to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19 to 20, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The church and His work in the church. But, but He can only hope in that, that crown of boasting if He had faithfully discharged His duties according to the Word of God. So he, he fulfills his stewardship from Christ by fully embracing it, by faithfully discharging it. And, and he talks about this mystery, which is Christ in you. And, and, and I just want to take a few moments to, to help you to get a better understanding of what this mystery is, because this is a pretty big section in this, this passage. So, so turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. And there's a few passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that I want you to see this. This mystery that was hidden for the ages, but is now revealed to you in Christ. In Exodus chapter 13 and 21 to 22. You see, when, when the... the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. Everybody around the Israelites, they worshipped idols. That was the form of religion. That was the form of worship. And, and, and to, for God to say that He is who He is, that no one can see Him, that not to make an idol or a graven image was groundbreaking. It was different than all the nations, but it was true. But yet, God would manifest Himself and His presence to the Israelites in certain ways. And in Exodus, at the end of Exodus 13, it says this. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This was a manifestation of God. It wasn't God himself, but it, it, just like the burning bush. It was a manifestation of God that he would dwell with his people and, and, and the same with the tabernacle. And then you turn to the end of Exodus in Exodus chapter 40. And as Moses finishes the tabernacle and he finishes it and he does everything according to what the Lord commanded him, and they, in a sense, consecrate this tabernacle, and they, they begin to worship it. It says in Exodus 40 and verse 33, And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This was special because God was manifesting His presence to His people, showing that He is with them, that they are special, that the Creator of the world is with these people. Now turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7, and He would show this now, once again, in the building of the, the building of the temple, as Solomon builds this temple and he um, consecrates it in Second Chronicles chapter seven, verses one to three, he says, "As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple." And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. See, same two elements, fire and the cloud the glory of the Lord, the glory cloud that would manifest his presence with his people, this, this miraculous manifestation of his presence with the people and, and in such a way in the tabernacle and in the temple that amazing, that, that fear came upon the people and they bowed their faces to the ground. But then turn to Acts, Acts chapter 2. And here's the connection in Acts chapter 2. Because something happened in Acts chapter 2 that was somewhat different. But would carry with it the same principle. And the same idea. And should have had the same effect. In Acts chapter 2, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That was an indication of God's presence. Not God's presence in a place, not in a place of worship, but within His people. It was closer more intimate, something new. His spirit would dwell in them. And, and, and this would continue. And this is the mystery hidden for ages. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Emmanuel, God with us. Not just manifesting His presence in a place, but inside of us. This is the greatness of the glory of this mystery. And this would continue to be even more intimate. At the end of the age, in Revelation 21, it says this in verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Because of the greatness of this mystery, of this glory, Paul is willing to suffer like Christ. He's willing to fulfill his stewardship from Christ. 
And then he's willing to continue the mission of Christ. In verse 28 of Colossians 1, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He just said this, this mystery, this, this hope of glory is Christ in you. God in you. God dwelling inside of you. His Spirit taking out the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. Giving you a heart and a mind that desires to serve Him and to know Him. This is the greatness of the glory, the mystery, the gospel the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This is why Paul does what he does, why he suffers like Christ, why he fulfills his stewardship from Christ, why he continues the mission of Christ. Because as he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone in mature in Christ. That's not new. That's not new. That's the mission of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ taught us to do in the Great Commission. Because you can see this in the Great Commission. It kind of mirrors this, this verse 28, which is essentially Paul's philosophy of ministry, how he do, does ministry. He proclaims Christ, and then he warns everyone, all peoples, in that warning to repent, to believe upon Him, to turn from sin, to walk in Christ, and even believers in the church to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, and then teaching them how to do it, and then with all wisdom in the specifics of life, how do we apply these truths in, the, in our specific circumstances so that He may present everyone mature in Christ. And, and Jesus, in a sense, says this in the Great Commission. In Matthew 28 and 18 to 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is kind of Paul is kind of, in a sense, explaining the Great Commission in a little bit more detail. He's carrying out the Great Commission here in verse 28. Him we proclaim. How, how do you make disciples? Well, ultimately, God has to do a work, but you make disciples by proclaiming Him, by proclaiming Christ, by proclaiming everything about Christ, His person, His nature, His works. You, you proclaim the context of Jesus and the long-awaited Messiah in the Old Testament. Everything about Jesus you proclaim. And then you proclaim the commands and the promises of Jesus. This is how you make disciples. But then, when you make disciples, then you have to teach them. You have to disciple them. You have to warn them to repent and believe. Even after their initial repentance and belief, in which they come into the kingdom, they have to continue in repentance and faith. They have to continue to trust and obey, to follow Christ, to turn from sin, to kill sin, to press on towards righteousness, to strive towards holiness. And then you teach them how to do that, what they are to believe and what they are to do. And, and, and how do you teach them? With all wisdom. Because the Word of God doesn't tell us what job 
we should take or, or specifically who we should marry or specifically who we should hang out with or where we should live. But there are principles in the word of God that help us to make those decisions. And that's how we teach everyone with all wisdom. That's how we disciple them. We proclaim him. We warn everyone, teach everyone. So Paul continues the mission of Christ by proclaiming him, by discipling, and, and then to present. He, he, he presents his goal, his end state, his objective is to present everyone mature in Christ. And, and this, this, um, this word mature could be translated complete, could be translated perfect. I, I think complete is a little bit better translation or even perfect in Christ, that we may present everyone, in a sense, to Christ as his people, present Christ's people to Christ at the end as ministers give an account, but also present, um, to present Christ's people to one another as they're being built up and one another sees them, each other as examples to, to, to um, emulate. But not just present everyone um, to Christ and to one another, but also to the world. As, as Paul disciples, as he proclaims, as he warns, as he teaches, there's a sense that as believers are being built up in Christ, he, he can present them to the world as different, as redeemed. So Paul, in his... In responding to the glories of Christ, he suffers like Christ. He fulfills his stewardship from Christ. Third, he continues the mission of Christ. And then fourth, he labors in the power of Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He labors. He labors in the power of Christ to, to the point of exhaustion. He, in these words, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me, struggling, agonizing is the, kind of the root word, a, a, a term in the Greek that um, is translated as, as agonizing, as almost... The picture here is of an athlete training hard, and not just any old athlete, but an Olympic athlete, an Olympian, um, someone that it, their, their game, their event consumes them, and training for it, toiling for it, struggling for it, doing whatever it takes to achieve this goal. He labors, but... He, notice how he says, with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. There, there's this synergism here, that as Paul is toiling and struggling, he does it for the purpose of Christ, that he would honor Christ in his toil, in his work, but he also does it trusting fully in the power of Christ. He labors in the power of Christ for the purpose of Christ, and trusting in the power of Christ. That Christ will give him the power to do all these things. Because if Christ was not with him, he could not suffer like he suffered. 
as he accounts all throughout uh, the letters to the Corinthians, and even in Philippians and and in uh, Galatians. But it's interesting because he, he even tells us to do this ourselves. He tells the Philippians to do this ourselves as we labor for Christ, as we live our Christian lives. He says to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his pleasure. Who's doing the work there? Paul or God? The answer is yes, both. Both. And this is what Paul says in Colossians 1.29. He's toiling, he's struggling, but it's Christ that is working in him and through him. It's Christ that's giving him the energy, the will, the desire. It's his affections. It's because of what Christ has done. It's because of who Christ is. It's because of this whole um, passage concerning Jesus Christ and his church, which he has laid out in verses 13 to 23, and the greatness of the glory of Christ, that he does everything that he does. There's almost a sense that you know, we can read about, Christ, uh, about, about Paul's sufferings and, and, and think that you know, no one really suffered like him except Christ. No one could suffer as much as Christ did on the cross because he bore the full penalty for our sins in his body on the tree, the, the, the full weight of the punishment and the wrath which we deserve. He bore that. But Paul goes on and he fills up the afflictions by suffering in the gospel ministry. Christ suffered once for all for our sins. But then he calls us to walk like he is. He did. To, um, as he said, if anybody would follow me and be my disciple, let him take up his cross. You know, that idea of bearing your own cross, of taking up your own cross. It, it wasn't just suffering the, the normal sufferings that most people in this world suffer because it's a broken world. It meant that we are to go to our death, that we are to take upon us the death sentence of Christ as being Christians and and proclaiming this gospel and living in a Christ-like manner. And if we do so, as Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. And so there is a sense that we can live our good, faithful Christian lives in, in this context of you know, 21st century America and the Western world and, and live pretty comfortably and, and not experience much persecution or suffering and still be faithful. But we have to ask ourselves, are we being faithful if there's no opposition? If there's no struggling? Sometimes that struggling is against our own flesh and our own desires for the comforts and the pleasures of this world. And we should take 
in a sense, this time of peace and prosperity and use it for the sake of the gospel and not for the sake of our own comforts and pleasures, but to be willing to discipline ourselves to make the word of Christ known, to make the word of God fully known to the world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage and this account of the life of Paul. And yes, it is true that we live in a different day and age. And yes, it is true that we are more blessed than most Christians in the world and definitely throughout history. But Lord, you call us to take up our cross and to follow you, to suffer, to proclaim your word, to live in a manner worthy of your calling, to be willing to sacrifice for the sake of others and for the sake of your gospel. And Yet, Lord, we have to be honest with ourselves and look at our lives and see that there isn't much suffering. Maybe it's because we aren't being faithful. Maybe it's because we're not willing to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. So, Lord, help us to take account of our lives. But more importantly, to take an account of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And if he's willing to make that sacrifice for us and for our sins, for our salvation, to bear our sins in his body on the tree, there's no sacrifice too great for us to make. So help us, Lord, to make those changes in our lives, to honor you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.